Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon. We have a very special guest today. Uh, we have a very good friend of mine from Louisiana State University here at Shreveport campus, Alexander Mika Baridze. Thanks for joining us. Hey, you did it well. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. I like the pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I take great pride in my pronunciation. Um, <laughs> as someone who studies French towns and cities and last names, you have to, right? Uh, yeah, indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, but yeah, no, Al Alexander, um, his professor, like I said, at LSU, he also has a few books out. I highly recommend them. Uh, you can find them on Amazon. And he also hosts a podcast, which I love, uh, Napoleonic Quarterly. And could you give us like a brief sketch of what that podcast is about? Yeah, it's um, it's actually three of us. Uh, Alex Stevenson, uh, uh, my good old friend, uh, Charles Esdale, uh, and me. And I think the unique of, uh, the uniqueness of this podcast is that we are looking at the entirety of the revolutionary era from 1780, uh, 1792 to 1815, but in three-month chunks. And we kind of look in depth what happened in each three months why it is important, kind of wider context. And um, I think that is something quite un unusual and unique. Uh, and we have awesome um, guest speakers uh, who kind of work in these particular areas. So each episode is, is uh, kind of, uh, has a rotating uh, uh, three or, or, or more um, guest speakers. And uh, so far it's doing quite well. And uh, of course we have a long road to go. We have uh, actually Alex, Charles and I, we just recorded one uh, on the beginning of 1798, so we still have <laughs> 17 long years to go. Right, right, right. Well, let's hop right into it. Let's start off with the sly old fox from the north, uh, General Kutuzov. Yeah, this is the guy that I spent last three years kind of uh, chatting and <laughs> in company of uh, since I just published um, in September his biography. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a good example of, of these uh, uh existing pro historiographical problem uh when it comes to napoleonic wars here we see one of the most icon kind of iconic uh general of the era uh, a field marshal a distinguished uh, general and yet uh, the last biography of his was uh published uh decades ago um uh, and, and and it was quite quite awful <laughs> um, so, as, as a literary critic, it was quite awful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, I mean, the the the, um, the author who has written extensively on on this period, but none none of his works are really kind of in depth and serious work. Um, the author went to kind of uh, you know made shortcuts and in some cases invented facts or misinterpreted mm. facts. So there was uh, a lot that needs to be kind of corrected and, and needed to be corrected and, and, and improved on. Um, so Kutuzov um, is a is an interesting um, guy for a number of reasons. Um, needless to say, I mean, I, I spent the, the biography that I wrote of his is some nine hundred pages, so uh, th there was a lot to write about him. Yeah, uh, uh, he was born into a noble family, um, a, an eminent noble family, is uh, among the kind of uh, wealthier uh, uh, aristocrats in in Russia, um, and he. Uh, received very good military education. Um, went to some of the best military schools in Russia, uh, kind of the cutting edge of of the phenomenon that 
my good friend uh, Christy Piquero um, term, uh, has uh, described as the military enlightenment, right? Mm-hmm. I think many of our listeners are familiar with enlightenment, but uh, now in kind of in the last few years, the focus is on kind of the impact of the enlightenment on the war, and, and, and that phenomenon is the military enlightenment. And Kutuzov is, in many respects, the the person who benefited from it, but also contributed to it. So he uh, studied under uh, uh, great teachers at, at the Joint uh, Artillery and Engineer School uh, yeah. in, in, in Russia. And then uh, after graduating at the top of his class, effectively, he starts his career that will ultimately go on for f- some 54 years. Yeah, and I think that's a great point you brought up. You know, people are like, oh, Napoleon was such an enlightened guy. He was beating like all these old school generals who didn't know what they were doing. And I think that's a big fallacy. I mean, these generals, whether they're Austrian or Prussian or Russian, they're very talented individuals, correct? Absolutely. Um, and I think um, uh, these are, as we'll, I, mean, I, I hope we'll, we'll have an ch- opportunity to talk today about uh, that, uh, 50, you know, infamous for the Russians uh, campaign at Austerlitz. Mm-hmm. where if the Tsar had listened to men like Kutuzov, the history of Europe, and I would say history of the world would have been absolutely different since I have no doubt whatsoever, having finished this book, that Kutuzov uh, would have um, turned that campaign uh, to the victory of allies. Agreed. Yeah. And we will and, get to that. We will get and to that. It's a foundational campaign, right, for Napoleon. Yep. Um, and, and, and so... Um, th- there are multiple factors why experienced men like Kutuzov or, you know, Prussian generals or Austrian ger- generals like Alvinci or Archduke Karl, why they go on and uh, get defeated by Napoleon. And it's not necessarily because they were inept or, or incompetent, or, but rather because they were oftentimes caught in circumstances that they simply couldn't control, that was beyond right. their uh, level of, of, of control. Right. And... You know, Napoleon wasn't the only brilliant tactician at this time. There was a guy named Suvorov, correct, in Russia. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, Suvorov was a, uh, a probably uh, the most brilliant uh, commander of that Russia produced in in this early modern period. Uh, right, absolutely, start, start, uh, absolutely amazing. And he didn't look the part. He was like this little tiny little, little farmer guy. Like <laughs> that's right oh very uh, uh unusual kind of quirky uh eccentric um uh, but there are behind that eccentricity uh, you, you can see the sharpness of his mind his uh, keen understanding of human nature uh you read his you know, his orders to the army and he speaks the language that the soldiers do and but it's deliberately so because he's one of early one of the first commanders to understand that success in war and battle uh, is dependent on whether not just your officer but your soldiers right those rank and file right understand what you expect from them and so he tried to talk to them in the language that they do and they did understand and you know napoleon does the same thing with his bulletins right later mm-hmm. on those are designed to inform and kind of shape the minds uh, of his soldiers to to Kind of inspire them, but also to tell them what are the expectations, and and Suvorov um, has done that before Napoleon did. Yep. So absolutely, and so Kutuzov he learns basically how to draft simple, concise orders and how to care for his men from Suvorov. Correct. Um, that is uh, one of the issues uh, I've 
kind of taken up in my uh, in my book. So if we look at this existing traditional historiography, um, there is a long-standing uh, myth. That's what I call it: a myth of uh, Kutuzov uh, being the disciple of Suvorov, of Suvorov kind of teaching him the ABCs of military service and so on. Mm. And there is a kernel of truth in it, but most mostly it is untrue. Okay. And what I mean by this is that um, Kutuzov was lucky that he um, his first job, really uh, serious job, kind of field job, uh, out of school was uh, as a company commander in the regiment that Suvorov commanded. Mm -hmm. um, but what is oftentimes forgotten uh, to mention is that Suvorov only commanded that regiment for about six months. That mm -hmm. Kutuzov was there, so. He met the guy, he kind of got to know him. He did write a nice recommendation for Kutuzov, but there was no serious engagement. And certainly considering that Kutuzov in 1762-63 is 14 years old, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I don't know what you were doing at 14, clearly not commanding a company, but nonetheless, there is, yeah. I, I, I doubt that there was a much, um, much learning involved. Yeah, It is later yeah. on in late 1770s and in the early 1780s that their path uh, um, cross again. Mm -hmm. and, and But even then, uh, Suvorov is commanding an army that is separate from the one that Kutuzov is serving. And the only occasion where you have kind of uh, hands-on Suvorov-Kutuzov relationship is during the Russo-Turkish War in 1790, when Suvorov was sent to lead the assault on that uh, famous uh, Ottoman fortress of Ismail and Kutuzov commanded one of the assault columns and he distinguished himself and Suvorov famously said that um, Kutuzov was on my left flank but he was my right hand ah. and, and I think that kind of uh, um, that nugget that kind of little bits of right you know, of their relationship was later on blown up into this full-blown kind of uh, relationship between the master and the disciple, but I'm not a believer in it. I, I think uh, as a person, as a character, Kutuzov was absolutely different from Suvorov. And in his approach to war, in his approach to uh, 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 planning uh, battles, um, planning operations, he is far more methodical, far more kind of defensive-minded um, than Suvorov. Um, mm -hmm. you know, we can kind of look and compare their campaigns and I, I, uh, to me, they are day and night. Now, if we may fast forward a little bit from there, but that's a great point uh, on the Suvorov Kutuzov relationship. There's every picture you see of Kutuzov, he looks like this corpulent, lazy, overweight guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and and, and he, his eye, it looks misfigured, but that's for a reason, correct? Yes. Um, so let me maybe uh, uh, state uh, from from the onset that the traditional portrayal of him with an eye patch is not true. Mm. In fact, it's a, it is an invention of Soviet cinema. Uh, uh, Kutuzov never wore an eye patch, but he did suffer um, what I describe as a two and a half grievous head injuries. Mm. Head, uh, um, uh, he was shot twice in the head. Plus, at Austerlitz, um, a splinter struck him in the cheek. Mm. Now, those two uh, head injuries were absolutely uh, um, remarkable. Yeah. The first one takes place in, uh, well, both of them take place in Crimea. The first one is in 1770s, and the other one is in 17, early 1780s. The first one is particularly interesting because it, it was a medical sensation. 
So this should is, have been lethal, right? I mean, that should have been it. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. to, to kind of describe to your listeners, um, this is uh, taking place during Russo-Ottoman War. Uh, it, it, remarkably, uh, I mean, especially for the American listeners uh, who will, uh, will be struck maybe by the parallel to the 1815 Battle of New Orleans, the peace treaty was already signed uh, when the battle was fought. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in this case, Treaty of Kuchu Kainarji was also already signed, but the news of it has not reached the uh, kind of uh, the Crimean countryside, and um, the battle uh, took place at a small village. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Kutuzov was leading this uh, group of grenadiers, and as they were charging towards the Ottoman position, they had to cross the trench. And, and as he Kutuzov was climbing out of the trench, he kind of got on the boulder to so that people, you know, his soldiers could see him. And he tried, tried to inspire them to, to move forward. And as he turned, kind of to, to look at his soldiers, the Ottoman bullet struck him in the left temple, mm. went through his cranium, and exited on the right temple. So it actually uh, penetrated his entire skull. Wow. Now, um, Ukrainian archaeologists have done a really interesting study on the battlefield, and they recovered a lot of spent uh, bullets on, on from that area. And the average size of the uh, uh, projectile that they found is about 18 millimeters, so about, you know, more than half an inch. Mm-hmm. So imagine that thing striking your temple and passing somehow <laughs> in your right prefrontal uh, area without damaging the brain. Um, could, and, and remember, this is the uh, right. This is the time before antiseptics, before any any kind yeah. of theory, modern um, surgery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Kutuzov was lucky that uh, there was a very talented uh, French surgeon in the in the Russian army um, who was able to treat him well enough that he didn't get any complications. He didn't get any. Uh, inflammation, um, the bullet. He was also lucky that the bullet passed through without damaging his brain, right. but it did damage the muscles of his eye. And therefore, when we look at the uh, Kutuzov's portrait, he's always shown with that left eye uh, kind of to the front, uh, and the right eye is usually the back, not showing that uh, it was kind of skewed out. Right. Although um, he could still see um, from both eyes, so yeah. it, it, he had a, later on developed a problem with the light sensitivity, but otherwise, uh, uh, it, it's a remarkable, really, uh, uh, survival. Um, and that was the first case. Yeah. The second time, uh, he was in Crimea again at the great siege of Ochakov, and <laughs> one of the officers, uh, there was an Ottoman sortie, an Ottoman kind of attack from the fortress, and the officer called. Kutuzov to look out from the embrasure to look at where the Turks were attacking. And as luck would have it, Kutuzov looks out, and just then the Ottoman bullet strikes him uh. in the left cheek, goes kind of through his mouth, and exits on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and a crisscross you know, injuries, right? Yeah. And once again, um, he survived. Um, his speech was unaffected. Um, he uh, got no no inflammation. In fact, six months later, he was healthy enough to get back into into saddle. Did, did he travel to Western Europe for treatment on his eye and his his injuries? Yes. Um, so, because the first injury was, um, I would say, almost unprecedented in terms of uh, getting shot and surviving it. Um, so, um, the uh, Empress Catherine uh, gave him a, a a furlough and actually. Uh, effectively paid for all his medical expenses, which mm-hmm. allowed 
Kutuzov to travel to Berlin, uh, to Vienna and Leiden. Um, Leiden actually had a really strong medical uh, school at the time. And so he um, he visited these places, kind of seeking um, treatment, uh, but also meeting local uh, kind of prominent people. Um, there are stories of him interacting with Frederick the Great and uh, mm -hmm. meeting uh, some of the great Austrian um, uh, field marshals in, in Vienna. Uh, I, I but there's uh, but unfortunately there is not enough kind of uh, information surviving on what exact who exactly he met and where and how. Right. So at least when I tried to kind of look it up, uh, it was I, I couldn't find any sub, substi, uh, uh, substantive information for it. But we do know that he traveled. Yeah, so, yeah. I uh, see a lot of these these art these stories and articles about who met Frederick the Great and who studied under Frederick the Great, and it's it's the evidence is flimsy at best. Yeah, and and even if he um, so I looked at Frederick's uh, court journals, uh, which usually recorded who came and who went and. There is no mention of Kutuzov, uh, um, and certainly there is no mention of him in kind of Frederick's uh, correspondence. So it would have been a social meeting at, at right. one of the kind of uh, dinners. Uh, so I, I would not attach much kind of attention to it because uh, you know it would have been a passing kind of encounter. Well, let's 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 jump ahead to uh, our favorite topic uh, to Auschwitz in 1805, if you don't mind. Um, no, not at all. Yeah, especially yeah. this is a this is one of those moments when, um, you know, I, and I have a chapter in the biography that's called Eclipse of Austerlitz, because, and that's a play on the words for Napoleon's son of Austerlitz. No, I, I think it was his best battle by far. Um, you know, he feigned weakness. He'd been, you know, he had the Ulm campaign. He was stretched to the limit of his supply chain, Napoleon was. There is a longstanding myth, which... Uh, has unfortunately been uh, spread around for quite some time that uh, that this uh, failed the, the failure of this uh, joint operation was due to the difference in in calendar. Uh, and let me assure you, I've read is that. I've read that. Yeah, not true. Yeah. Uh, if we look at the original sources, documents, memorandums that both sides negotiated, they perfectly you know they knew perfectly well about the difference of calendars. They they dated. Russian documents are oftentimes dated by in both calendars, and the decisive documents that they signed with the Austrians were all in this new style, Gregorian calendar. So th there is no problem with the uh, calendar as such. Yeah. The problem was, in many respects, the Austrian decision to launch the campaign uh, in order to force Bavaria out of that perceived neutrality uh, before the Russians even made it a uh, halfway uh, to, to the Bavarian border. And that was a, a huge mistake mm -hmm. um, because the that meant that it gave Napoleon uh, a head start. So about 10 days of head start over, over Kutuzov. Uh, so which meant that by the uh, uh, um, late October when Kutuzov is approaching the Bavarian borders, it's too late. Um, Austrian army is already at Ulm, it's encircled. Uh, and about to be destroyed. That's one yep. problem. Second, yep. and, and it's a problem of coalition warfare, uh, a, a warfare where you have multiple uh, right partners, oftentimes yep. partners that are not particularly trust, trust, uh, trusting each other. Yep. Uh, yep. And, and here what we see is that Austrians um, oftentimes didn't share the full picture with Kutuzov as he was moving to the Bavarian border. So for, by the time he reaches the border, he is, for example, unaware 
of the problems the Austrian army is facing. Um, and it, it, he only rediscovers the, the disaster that befell um, the Austrian army when he encountered um, the Austrian commander Mack at Branau, the famous encounter that Tolstoy um, describes in War and Peace. Yeah. Um, but Kutuzov then successfully evades Napoleon's right um, uh, pursuit, and he's able to save the Russian army and bring it to the small town of Olmutz. Um, and this is where the story gets really interesting, because at Olmutz, uh, the remnants of Austrian army joined Russians. Uh, the Russian reinforcements also arrived. And of course, the uh, the main Austrian army it was not in Germany, it actually was in northern Italy, and Archduke Charles was leading it back. So it was at the time uh, on the plains of Hungary. So yeah. when Alexander, Russian emperor, and Francis, Austrian emperor, came to Olmutz, and they had the uh, council of war, Kutuzov came out with a very sensible solution to the uh, problems by pointing out that they simply need to wait it out. Yeah. Right. And I think argued that if we wait two or three weeks, two or three weeks, Allied forces will be twice the size of Napoleon's army. Napoleon is about 600 miles from the French borders. Right. He's the line of supplies. His lines of communication is all exposed. It's like that, uh, you know, he, Napoleon's army is like an arrow, right? It has yeah. penetrated deep into the Austrian domain but the shaft is too slim it can be snapped the problem was as and you already mentioned is that this is the first time um russian czar is is in charge of the army in in, in the campaign mm -hmm. in fact it is the first time russian uh emperor is in is leading an army since the days of peter the great so it, it's been a while so there's mm -hmm. a lot of kind of stake in terms of prestige and reputation and perception why is he doing that? Just to prove that he's just as powerful as Napoleon? Or what's he doing at the front? Yeah, I mean, part of it is that. Part of it is, is the fact that um, uh, Alexander is surrounded by a young yes-man, right? Mm -hmm. The psychophants who, uh, like Dolgorukov, like others, uh, were kind of telling him that he's awesome, that he can <laughs> do it, that we can win this, that Napoleon right. is weak. I mean, right. Kutuzov objected, repeatedly objected. To, to this. Yeah, and, and what, I wonder like if, if the sycophants in the room were like, oh, don't listen to that old fat man sleeping in the corner, listen to us, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, at one of the uh, meetings with the czar, when Kutuzov objected, Dolgorukov kind of sniggered at him, kind of derived, you know, uh, uh, condescendingly. Right. And Kutuzov turned and kind of kind of roared at him and said, what are you laughing at, young man? <laughs> uh, do you think I'm a coward and I fear battling he kind of points out his injuries on the face right because my wounds speak for themselves mm -hmm. and then he storms out but that is a crucial meeting because once kutuzov leaves dolgorukov turns to czar and the eyewitness describes the czar is kind of deep in his thought because he uh, you know he's a smart man he um, you know certainly understood what kutuzov was saying was sensible right and dolgorukov kind of pushes the button he knows that button that works with czar and he says mm -hmm. If your majesty retreats, Napoleon will think of us as cowards. Uh -huh. And the eyewitness kind of describes the Alex as being kind of startled by this. And he looks at Dolgorukov and says, cowards? No, it is better for us to die. Mm. And that kind of sense, I think, misplaced sense of 
masculinity and honor and right. you know, wanting to prove yourself means that the advice that Kutuzov offers is completely ignored. And uh, Tsar orders uh, the Allied armies to, to move forward. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Even on the way there, Kutuzov tries repeatedly to warn them, and they easily ignored. And of course, the last and most famous attempt is during that infamous Council of War when the uh, Austrian uh, officer Weyrother is uh, kind of yep. drawing and reading that incomprehensible disposition for the attack. <laughs> right? And Kutuzov is sitting in the armchair, and, and uh, contemporary, you know, eyewitnesses describe him as, as kind of sleeping. Yeah. But the reality was, if we look close, is that he simply gave it up. He essentially says, F it, right? Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> I've, I've done everything possible to avoid this battle. They're not listening to me. Yeah. I'm gonna take it, I'm gonna take it out. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, but, this this Weirother, he yeah. he his strategy was such that Napoleon wanted him to do exactly as he did. It, it was almost he was accused of being in the pay of Napoleon for his strategy. It was absolutely, really- and then Russians um, uh, after the battle, Russians held grudges against the Austrians. And Dolgorukov, for example, later on wrote an article that was published in a newspaper directly accusing Austrians of of treason that they led, kind of intention deliberately led the Russian army to destruction. Mm. Um, but it was a, a bit too late, right? Yeah, um, let's, yeah. Let's let's yeah, you know, just briefly summarize the battle. You know. The right, the they attack Debu on the right side. They leave the Pratsen Heights, and when they do, Sult and his men rush up and take the Pratsen Heights, and obviously debacle. You know the Prus- the Russians and Austrians lose. I think it's a large number of force. It's almost sixteen thousand killed and wounded versus only, you know, seven thousand for the French. Yeah, I guess you are not counting prisoners or the wounded. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> because uh, uh, the total yeah, exactly. the total, total number is much much higher. Yeah. Wounded. Um, Well, here you see um, kind of a couple of things. One is that um, if we look at uh, Weyrother's kind of battle plan, uh, it's, I think the basic idea is is actually quite appropriate. Yeah, it sounds, yeah. Turn the flank, drive them into the mountains, destroy. Yep. Yep. Um, But of course, what Weyrother doesn't know um, is that Napoleon expects him to do that. And I think this is where Napoleon's brilliance is, is He's anticipating the enemy. But having said so, and in the book I kind of, uh, kind of question it, um, whether we would have said the same, you know, whether whether that can be said, um, you know, that Austerlitz is a great Napoleon's victory, but to what extent it is a great victory if the enemy ignores the rational advice that would have prevented the battle in the first place. Yep. Uh, I mean, this is a scenario where your opponent is de- is almost deliberately trying to sabotage its own victory. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I, um, it's it's really uh, fascinating. And you mentioned, yeah, I mean, the strategy on the Austrian-Russian side was sound, but they were up against this genius guy who knew what they were going to do. 
Except so, if Kutuzov had the chance. See, this is the thing. If he had the chance to be in charge as his position as a commander-in-chief entitled him, this battle, first of all, would not have been fought, and the outcome of the war would have been profoundly different. Agreed. Agreed. Even on the battle, in the even on the day of the battle, that morning, right? The morning of on December 2nd. Yep. The sun rises and the Poland kind of looks over yep. it or through the fog, right? Yep. Kutuzov stands on the other side on those Pratsen Heights, and he effectively knows what's gonna happen. This is the tragedy, I think, of this man, is that he knows what's gonna happen because he waits um and refuses to follow the disposition of sending the fourth column, Colorado's column, from Pratsen Heights down uh on this flanking maneuver. Mm-hmm. And he waits and he waits until Tsar shows up, right, with his posse. And there's a wonderful scene there where Alex comes and says, what's going on? Why are the soldiers standing? Mm-hmm. Uh, why are they not moving? And uh, Kutuzov says, I'm waiting. And Alex kind of looks around and chuckles. And he says, what are you waiting for? We're not on the parade grounds. <laughs> and Kutuzov kind of snarkly responds. That's precisely why I'm waiting because we are not on the parade ground. I know what's going to happen, right? Right, right. And Alex overrules him and orders the troops to start moving from the uh, Pratsen Heights down. And just at that moment, right, as the troops are starting moving, the, that famous uh, counterattack uh, yeah. begins. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, in in some respects, I, I look at Kutuzov as this. On, on, on the day of Austria, is this tragic individual. He tried his best to avoid the battle. He can't. Uh, he's, um, uh, it's a personal strategy because his um, beloved uh, son-in-law is shot uh, dead uh, mm. or mortally wounded, leading the, one of those counter charges to contain the uh, French assault on Pratsen Heights. Yeah. So he has to carry his son, son-in-law's body back home. And of course, he presides over this disaster of of, of massive proportions yeah, that let's talk, he will be re- held responsible for. Yeah, let's talk about the aftermath. You know, obviously, it's a rout. The French are, you know, attacking Murat, sending the cavalry for pursuit. What is Alexander doing? What is Kutuzov doing? <laughs> well, in the middle of the battle, um, they can't find uh, Alex. Um, uh, there is this confusion, of course. Uh, the losses are uh, very high and on the Allied side, especially in, among the officers, who many of them are uh, wounded or simply dispersed and, and missing in action. So the command control chain is disrupted, and mm-hmm. um, Alex could not be um, found until one of his uh, um, aide camps uh, finds him uh, sitting um, under a tree and crying. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, I bet he was. Uh, I bet he was thinking I should have listened to Kutuzov. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, but, you know, yeah. that was... night it's Kutuzov who rallies the troops. Uh, right. It's Kutuzov who leads them to safety. Right. And ultimately, it is Kutuzov who leads them all the way back to back home. Alex uh, goes back uh, to Saint Petersburg, and uh, in a relationship between the two men, um, which was already quite tense, and that's a separate subject that. Kind of can take us back to the murder of, of uh, uh, Emperor Paul, mm-hmm. in which Alexander, of course, was uh, complicit. Um, but uh, the, those relations only get worse because of that Austerlitz fiasco, right? Um, yeah, and I, I think that's interesting. Like, you know, 
it wasn't Katusa's idea. It wasn't his fault. Yet somehow he gets the blame. Now I understand the boss never gets the blame, but <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, uh, but he. But you know what? Um, Kutuzov almost the same night, the night of the battle. Already he understands that he's gonna be. This is gonna be his legacy, right? He's gonna be shouldered with this. So he already that night is trying to lay the grounds for his uh, kind of uh, for his uh, you know reputation to be. Um, Rehabilitated or saved or rehabilitated, right? Yeah. Um, and he meets with soldiers, and every time he meets the soldiers that night, they're gonna the fire in the bonfires. He tries to explain what happened and explain that hey, it's not my fault. I'm not gonna say whose fault it is, but it's not yeah. my fault. <laughs> but my favorite part is when um seven years later, and this is 1812, November. Yep. Uh, Napoleon is barely making his way out of Russia, right? His army is, is essentially destroyed. And uh, on the outskirts of Smolensk, after the Battle of Krasny, um, the Russians capture uh, uh, dozens of flags, French flags, and mm. they bring it to Kutuzov. And one of the flags, this kind of iconic right, tricolor flag with golden embroidery uh, showing the names of the battles that the French won, one of them flags Austerlitz. Mm. And so Kutuzov looks at this flag and uh, gives an impromptu speech. And then at the end of it, he says, remember, I'm not to be blamed for Austerlitz. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, let's go ahead and jump ahead to 1812, if you don't mind. Um, now, he's somewhat sidelined between 1805 and 1812, right? He is. Um, and that's, again, kind of uh, the after effect of Austerlitz. Uh, partly, I think uh, Alex didn't want him kind of as a reminder of, hey, I told you so. Partly it's because Kutuzov himself is burned out. Mm -hmm. And he goes to Kiev um, in 1806, and he stays there for quite some time. So it is from Kiev that he's following um, the events in um, in Prussia, right? The, the implosion of Prussia in 1806. Mm -hmm. Then the, the Russo-French campaign, Second War in, in 1806, 1807 in Poland. Uh, uh, and ultimately, he's recalled from this kind of semi-exile because uh, Alexander needs somebody to lead the troops against the Turks. Um, the war against the Turks began in 1806, uh, and it has been too long, not no progress, no major victories shown. And so um, he, uh, he sends Kutuzov uh, to what is today uh, Romania, Mm -hmm. to lead one of the uh, Russian corps there. And he's quite good at this. Um, I mean, um, uh, by 1811, uh, he will take charge of the entire army, the so-called mm -hmm. army of uh, Moldavia, later on becomes army of Danube. And with that army, he conducts a, a masterful campaign, which I devote three chapters in the book because I thought, uh, I, I still think that Kutuzov is the commander really shines in 1810, 1811, mm -hmm. uh, because it is his operational brilliance. It's his bad tactical brilliance. I look at him and I see all the elements and hallmarks of what we think of as Napoleonic campaigns all right. uh, being manifested by him against the Turks. Mm -hmm. But towards the end of that war, the Russo-Turkish War, 1806, 1812, does he realize that his troops might be needed elsewhere? Um, yes, and that's one kind of the urgency where um, Alexander 
um, already um, in 1811, of course, sees the war coming. You know, mm -hmm. We see Russian preparations for the war starting well before 1812. Um, and for Kutuzov, uh, the knockoff effect is that uh, Alex is pushing him to crush the Turks as soon as possible. But it's, of course, easier said than done. Than done yeah. Uh, and, and even though uh, Kutuzov scores a brilliant victory at Rus uh, in, in 1811, uh, even then Ottomans still refuse to negotiate with the Russians because they know that the war between Russia and France is, is impending and they mm -hmm. just want to wait it out. Mm -hmm. And in the respects, it's Kutuzov who, uh, once again, very rationally kind of, uh, uh, advocates uh, cutting losses, finding some compromise with the Turks. Uh, and, and ending the war so they can release 60,000 troops that were committed uh, at this theater. Right. And ultimately, it's his vision that materializes uh, because Alex wanted to grab what is all of Moldavia today, what is all of Romania and parts of Bulgaria, mm -hmm. uh, and urged him to give up on this conquest and keep just a little bit that the Turks were willing to give because there was a much bigger threat to deal with. And ultimately, that's the vision that prevails in 18, in May of 1812, when Kutuzov signs the Treaty of Bucharest, uh, Russia effectively gave up on six years worth of conquests against the Turks and only retained a, a small piece of territory called Bessarabia. Yep. Um, but of course, the upshot was that the Southern Front was now secured and those tens of thousands of troops could be used against Napoleon. Right, and, uh, and if I may transition on the other front, the French have invaded in June, and Barclay de Tolle, who's the commander, is facing odds of two to one, and he's retreating and bringing Napoleon deeper into the country. Now, poor de Tolle, people are calling him a coward, and he doesn't know what he's doing, and the, you know, he should stand up to Napoleon. And then the Battle of Smolensk happens, and it's pretty much a terrible battle on both sides. But after that, I think Alexander's had enough of de Tolle, correct? Even with that, before he knew about the battle fight, uh, fought at Smolensk on the 17th of August, right? So the battle just started. And of course, mm -hmm. Alex, uh, having no internet or cell phones, yeah. doesn't know it. <laughs> yeah. Even before that, uh, Alex is convening a, a meeting of the special uh, committee uh, that was tasked with selecting the new commander-in-chief. And of course, the reason for this is the uh, perceived failure of Barclay de Tolly to stop the French invasion. Mm -hmm. So uh, irrespective of the outcome of Smolensk, Barclay de Tolly would have been removed. Interesting. Uh, from, the, from the command. Interesting. Um, and, and the choices available, obviously, the Bagration, there's uh, Bennington, but they go to the old war horse, right? They go to Cattuso. Uh Yes. And, and, and um, the, uh, when you, if you look at the kind of the, the uh, proceedings, the agenda or the minutes of, the me of that meeting, you see them looking at the top hierarchy of the, of the generals. Mm -hmm. One, uh, and hopefully we'll talk about Barclay de Tolly, but, uh, uh, whom I have a great respect for. Me too. Uh, uh, he's a, again, for him, 1812 is a tragic moment. And then you see uh, the tragedy of this man who, like Kutuzov in 1805, Barclay de Tolly understands what is the right strategy, but he also knows that it is highly unpopular strategy, and yet he perseveres, he carries that burden. And so when the special committee met, 
there were several things that they wanted to uh, to account for. Uh, one was that they wanted to appoint somebody who will carry the weight. Borkai de Toli, if we look at his uh, at his career and which was quite successful up to 1812, but he's not that heroic figure. He was a, effectively a brigade and divisional commander uh, who served very well in 1806-1807. Has a wonderful kind of performance in in Finland in 1808-1809, but he doesn't have that recognition, that name recognition. Mm. He he hasn't won a war. Mm -hmm. He hasn't won a campaign as such, right? Um, and uh, that's that's one thing. Second, they wanted somebody of senior enough rank who could instill obedience. Right. Uh, because one of the challenges Barclay de had was the fact that when it came to military rank, he was junior to Bagration. You know, and Bagration therefore refused to follow his his advice. That's his a great order. point. That's a really great point. Yeah. I, I brought that up in a and previous, so, um, pre previous episode yeah. that, you know, people always harp that Napoleon's marshals didn't get along with each other. There was competition, but there was competition in every army, even the Russian army, you know, with the oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. imagine the egos, right? All of yeah. these are egos, uh, huge egos, right? All of them won the glory and distinction and yep. awards and money. Yep. <laughs> so, and especially <laughs> in, in the war like this, which is perceived to be a patriotic war. It's a, right. it's about, you know, the black and white and the Minikian vision of us, the good guys against them, the bad guys who are yep. godless, heathen, right? The revolutionaries, right? Yep. Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, uh, and so when they looked at the kind of the, who is available, Kutuza was was the only real candidate because yep. everyone else was either too old um, or not of high enough stature. Let's jump to, if we may to Borodino and the stand, you know, obviously Smolensk was a somewhat of a victory for Napoleon and he decides to carry on the war to Moscow. And at Borodino, the Russians basically draw a line in the sand and, you know, Kutuzov's in charge of that defensive battle. What did you think about his strategy there? And do you think it was a, a good idea to, to fight that battle? Uh, this is a, another kind of vague moment, um, kind of complex moment, um, because uh, looking at Kutuzov's letters, and I went through dozens and dozens of them, mm -hmm. I got the feeling, and uh, you know that's my contention um, uh, that uh, I'm sure people might disagree with, I got this idea that um, Borodino was conceived by him not necessarily as a battle that he would have won. In fact, on more than one occasion, he admits that he will not win this battle. Mm -hmm. But rather, he conceived this battle as accomplishing two things. One, it's a political battle. It's a, it's a, it's a battle for the hearts and minds of the Russian um, people. Uh, that here, we make a stand. As you said, we draw the line, and we make a stand when we show that we can fight. Because mm -hmm. until then, it's kind of perception is, hey, we keep retreating, giving up these cities, these villages. Uh, when are we going to fight? And so Borodino kind of accomplishes that PR, political, right. heart and minds part. Right. The second part is that um, if we look at the kind of tactical disposition, Kutuzov clearly does not envision this battle as, as, as being uh, offensive for the Russian army. It's a defensive-minded battle. Um, it is a battle that is uh, that sees the Russian army dig in on those fortifications, Bagration's flashes on the left flank, the great battery in the middle, 
the Maslow 10 fortifications on the right flank. It's a heavily fortified position. Right. Uh, and Kutuzov says in one of his letters that the goal was to let the French break their teeth on this nut. Right. So essentially they will try to break us, but they will break their teeth at us. And I'm glad you pointed it out like that. The Battle of Shevardino, where they had the the one redoubt way out in front of the other ones, was almost like that was there. That that was actually not Kutuzov's idea. In fact, um, that is Kutuzov actually chose out the officer who was responsible for it because the when, when the army arrived on the September four five, it was deployed. If kind of for the readers uh, to draw an imaginary kind of uh, 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 map. Uh, the Russian army was deployed along the Kolocha River, but that made its left flank completely exposed uh, mm-hmm. to the uh, to the French flanking um, uh, strike, and that was the deployment that one of Kutuzov's um, officers, uh, a guy by the name of Toll, Colonel Toll, was responsible for. Mm-hmm. And Kutuzov immediately recognized it, and that is why on September five, he starts moving the army back towards the Semyonovska village. But as he's moving back, the French army arrives, and therefore Shevardino has to be defended as the uh, as a way of preventing the French from arriving too soon. So it's a kind of battle in motion, yeah, um, which yeah. results in unnecessary losses. But but you know, sometimes things like this happen in war, right? Yeah, it almost reminds me of like a wave break, you know, like a a bunch of rocks out in front to break the wave, and then we'll attack the rest. Uh, yeah, the you know the great the, the redoubt is Shevard you know, is the the redoubt is a two two a glorious name for it. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's not nowhere near finished. Uh, it's it's a it, it could not have contained or stopped the French army aside, but the idea was to simply delay, it. Mm-hmm. and to that uh, it, it served its purpose. Uh, so the if the French army indeed kind of got delayed on September five. The rest of the army, the Russian army, was able to retreat, take up position uh, at Semyonovska, and then uh, on the 7th of September, they will, they will fight a decisive battle. Yeah, I mean, if I may, I, I think the battle, once it started, Kutuzov was plugging holes in the dam where he could, and he was redeploying as best he could. You know, he lost Bagration in the battle, and, um, you know, on the French side, massive losses. Dubu was wounded, Ney was wounded. Um, it, was, it was an epic battle, but I the amazing thing you know whatever you want to call it a pirate victory for napoleon is that if i'm not mistaken kutusov reported it to alexander as a victory yes and uh kind of to mention something um so kutusov is uh, is prudent enough to realize that um in the battle the, the type of battle he's he wants to wage and that is again the battle of attrition right mm-hmm. he doesn't need to be a hands-on manager of everything mm-hmm. That is why if you read his order to the army on the day of the battle, he specifically says that he delegates the authority to his two subordinates, and that is Barclay de Tully and Bagration, mm-hmm. both of them accomplished, veteran, experienced, yeah. capable men, yep. and he lets them fight this battle locally, right? So essentially, Barclay, you deal with the right and center, Bagration, you deal with the left. And that is why Kutuzov is largely absent from the battle. He famously sits and eats uh, fried chicken on 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 top of the hill, right? But right. and and it sometimes creates this vision of him uh, of of him just being uh, careless or, or not 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 involved. But no, he paid cl- uh, um, close attention to the battle. 
understanding that his his role is in many respects um, is not needed because he has these two brilliant guys mm-hmm. um, who, in many respects, um, acquitted this, the task that he gave them. Certainly, Barclay de Tolly did. You know, that's a great point too. Um, and Napoleon sometimes, you know, did that as well. You know, he gave an overall strategy to the battle. But he left the actual handling of it to his marshals. Yeah, no, I think that's that's at least that's my conception of, of Borodino um, and why um, Kutuzov, by all um, eyewitness accounts, why he had this kind of hands-off approach. Yeah. Um, if I had the likes of Bagration, Barclay de Tolly, Dokhturov, uh, Rayevsky, right, Bogovut and others, and under my command, yeah, exactly, I would have given them kind of the basic instructions and then um, entrust, trusted them to to take care of the rest. Platov, the guy that you mentioned, that one is a bit problematic. <laughs> uh, partly because he was um, drunk uh, on the day of the battle. I mean, really, really drunk. Yeah, uh, and he, he, he was unique, that one. He was, yeah, let's, let's, let's say, yeah, let's uh, make yeah. it in that. Yeah, <laughs> He'll be unique. Nice yeah, yeah, unique. But, uh, <laughs> but to, to, to fast forward in the story, so... The battle's won. Napoleon moves his army into Moscow and occupies the city. Where does Kutuzov take the army? Um, well, Kutuzov, um, after abandoning Moscow, Kutuzov does a wonderful maneuver. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, called Tarutino maneuver, which Napoleon himself later on kind of talks about, uh, you know, grudgingly admits that was a, a, a great uh, of great conception. Hmm. And what that maneuver allows him is to mislead the French and kind of Russian army pretends that it is retreating southeast when in reality it actually makes a U-turn and marches to southwest. Hmm. And it positions Russian army within the striking distance from the French lines of communication, but also safe enough from Moscow where it can rebuild itself. Mm -hmm. Through 35 days that Napoleon spends in Moscow, uh, Kutuzov is building that army at the fortified camp at Tarutino. Right. So the Russian army doubled in size almost. Um, it, it got uh, tens of thousands of light cavalry of Cossacks. It received uh, infantry. It uh, rebuilt its artillery train. It got resupplied. Uh, all the while, of course, uh, uh, French army is living amidst the burned out ruins of, of the former Russian capital. Correct. Another important element is that Kutuzov here in October is launching uh, what we now call asymmetrical warfare. Um, it is his concept um, that he refers to as the little war, a Malaya Vaina, uh, where he is willing to conduct um, hit and run uh, operations on the exposed, vulnerable elements of the French military. So this would right. be. Uh, the supply trains, this will be isolated detachments. Uh, and so for that purpose, he, he establishes more than two dozen flying detachments that mm-hmm. effectively uh, surround Moscow and uh, prevent the, uh, the French army, for example, from foraging too far afield. So that's the second very important element in, this, in, the, in Kutuzov's um, uh, strategy. And the third is that he um, very actively encouraged uh, peasant opera, uh, peasant uh, uh, arming and kind of uh, leading this what, what we will call 
the people's war, right? Mm -hmm. Where you know, he would instruct his commanders to give the peasants weapons and let them form resistance units that will target these um, isolated French units. And mm -hmm. so by kind of harnessing this conventional, this asymmetrical and this popular element of the war, he uh, wanted to uh, create a uh, create a certain kind of conditions where Napoleon's uh, position will be un untenable in Russia, and he will be forced to leave. Right, and I think that's where we touch on Murat, who's you know friendly with these Cossacks. He's you know thinks he's befriending them, and then the surprise attack, I think, led by Bennington at the Battle of Winkovo. You know, I think that's what spurs Napoleon to finally give up Moscow and start the retreat back to France. Um, yes, and once again, this is not the battle that Kutuzov wanted to fight. In fact, it is fought, I would say, in contravention to his wishes. Mm -hmm. um, Kutuzov, by late October, uh, um, uh, he, well, uh, let me say, by mid-October, Kutuzov uh, already was seeing kind of the fruits of his asymmetrical approach. Right, mm -hmm. um, but of course, this approach is not sexy. <laughs> it doesn't result, <laughs> right, right. It doesn't result in great battles. Well, yeah, there is no, yeah. you know, won triumphs, no promotions, no right. awards, uh, and so uh, Benningson and many of the Russian officers got really anxious. They got anxious that hey, we're just sitting here mm -hmm. in this camp doing nothing and waiting, wait, waiting for what, right? Mm -hmm. And so Bennigsen argued, and many other officers kind of supported him, that uh, we need to take a more proactive approach. We need to strike back. We need, especially, we know that Murat's advance guard is isolated, is exposed and vulnerable. Why don't we attack? Mm -hmm. And Kutuzov's argument was that it will be like provoking a lion, right? To right. come out and strike at you. Why would you do that right. when the lion is slowly dying in his cave, <laughs> <aim>, right? <laughs> Um, and so he he didn't want to fight this battle, uh, but he's facing um, essentially an op, a, a revolt, an officer's right. revolt led by right. Bennigsen, who forced him to give green light to his uh, um, to to an attack, um, which results in this battle of Tarutino or Vinko, as the French call it. And of course, it is 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 it's uh, mismanaged, and yeah. that's where. I think both Kutuzov and Benningsen can be equally be blamed for because they dislike each other. Um, but right. it gives Kutu, uh, Napoleon a wake-up call. It does. And the very next day, of course, he orders the uh, the Grand Armée to, to abandon Moscow and retreat. Okay. So now we're in the retreat, and we jump ahead to the Battle of, and I'll let you pronounce it since I have trouble with this particular battle. <laughs> Thank you, sir. What the, what Mala Yaroslavets did is it prevented Napoleon from reaching the unaffected, right, still uh, rich uh, southern provinces of Russian Empire where the French army could have resupplied and okay. wintered. And instead, it pushed Napoleon back to that war-ravaged uh, path that the army took on the way in. Agreed. And I think that, uh, that made Napoleon realize that he will not be able to winter inside Russia, that he would mm -hmm. have to get out. Uh, so that's why, in kind of in my thinking, I, uh, uh, Milo Yaroslavets is this turning point of the war where uh, Napoleon wants to get out as quickly as possible from Russia so he can do kind of the rebuilding 
uh, somewhere in, in the Duchy of Warsaw rather than necessarily inside Russia. If Mavoyer Slavits had ended differently and if Napoleon had defeated Kutuzov there, um, then I think there was a greater probability of Napoleon wintering somewhere in the Vilna, between the Vilna and Smolensk area. Right. That area was, of course, recently acquired by Russia as a result of Polish partitions. There was a much greater uh, goodwill towards the French from the Polish-Lithuanian population, uh, and Napoleon would could have stayed there for that winter. Now, during this retreat, and this is, again, a debate amongst historians, it was said that Kutuzov escorted Napoleon out of Russia without legitimately attacking him. I find this to be complete bollocks and nonsense. He attacked him at Vyazma and Krasny, and, you know, when they crossed the river to finally get out of Russia, it was said that Kutuzov told British observer Robert Wilson, quote, I am by no means sure that the total destruction of the Emperor Napoleon and his army would be such a benefit to Russia. His succession would fall to the United Kingdom, whose domination would then be intolerable, end quote. What do you think of that opinion that Kutuzov was not trying to destroy Napoleon? Um, I think um, I, I think there is certain truth to it. Okay. And, um, so Kutuzov, if we look at the letters, if we look at the uh, conversation he's had with Wilson, with Benningson, with others, um, he always pointed out that the complete collapse of Napoleonic Empire would not be in the interest of Russia. So mm -hmm. first question would be, what would happen to France? What would happen to Europe if the empire disappeared, right? Mm -hmm. Will this unleash another revolutionary or political cycle or political cycle of political turmoil? Mm -hmm. um, how will the uh, political division of Europe work out? Where will Russia's role be in all of this? And for Kutuzov, I think the biggest concern was this. If he actively try to destroy Napoleon, and what I mean is kind of completely destroy, annihilate the Grand Armée, try to kill or capture Napoleon, it will result in tens of thousands of unnecessary Russian losses. Mm -hmm. And Kutuzov repeatedly pointed out that it is the, you know, the big battalions, right, to use that famous expression, the big battalions that really matter at the end of the day. Yeah. That Napoleon, by November, for Kutuzov, this war is over. Yeah. He can't see after Molière's slides, he can't see how Napoleon can stay and turn this war around. So Kutuzov was already kind of fights the second war against him down the road in 1813. What mm -hmm. will be that like? And mm -hmm. for him, Russia needs to retain strike force. He needs to retain army to be in contention. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, as he points, as he tells Wilson, as he tells Benningson. It will be Britain who will benefit ultimately from Napoleon's collapse. And he yeah. doesn't want to do it. Yeah. Now, I do agree with you that it doesn't mean that he completely avoided attacking, right? It's no, no. I, and I think it's an unfair criticism. By yeah. Asma, he almost destroyed Davu. And at Krasny, he almost destroyed Ney. He was very, very close. Although at Krasny, for example, um, uh, Kutuzov at one point uh, interrogates, uh, I think, a prisoner, and he asks him if if Napoleon is in Krasny. And the, uh, uh, 
uh, he's told, yes, yes, that's, you know, he's still there. And so Kutuzo says, okay, let's hold off on the attack. Mm-hmm. And the reason, again, is because he believed that if Napoleon was present, the, the French, the Grand Armée will fight to the end. Right. What's the point, right? What's right. the point of that? Right. Um, uh, let him escape with the remnants of the army. Right. Let the weather, the cold, the the hunger do its damage to Napoleon. Yeah. But let him survive because he will be the lesser of the evils that might come. So jumping ahead again to the story, Napoleon obviously leaves the army, I think, in early December. And then the, the remnant of the army gets out later in December and of 1812. And then... 1813, what happens to Kutuzov? He's been under a lot of stress. Um, I think what happens is that he arrives in December in Vilna, uh, nowadays Vilnius, and uh, Emperor Alexander joins him there. Uh, he and his kind of posse and all the psychophants and all that arrive mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Vilna. And um, Alexander right away um, sidelines Kutuzov. Mm. He effectively, like in 1805, uh, by the statute of the Russian army, when the Tsar is present, uh, he holds the supreme command. So Kutuzov is sidelined. Yep. But uh, um, Alexander also uh, removed Kutuzov's appointees and replaced uh, them with his own men. Mm. Uh, Chief of staff is replaced, and and Kanao is kind of directly responsible um, or answerable to to. Uh, uh, Alexander, the mm-hmm. duty generals are replaced and so on. And so Kutuzov now finds himself essentially in the same situation as he was in November of 1805. Mm-hmm. Uh, still nominally in charge, but in reality, not really. Mm-hmm. Um, and he tries to um, argue and kind of uh, explain to Alexander that um, Russian army needs time to rest, mm-hmm. uh, kind of regroup. It is often forgotten that Russian army is not immune to the practice uh, yeah. of the war, right? Right. Um, uh, at Perutino, Kutuzov was able to mobilize 120,000 men. And by the time they reached the border, there are less than 40,000 of them. So there's a lot of sick, wounded stragglers somewhere in between yeah. uh, 600-mile yeah. distance. What did uh, uh, Marshal Sult say after Eilau? Our, our bullets are not made of cotton. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, no. I, and then, I, of course, sure. in the same winter affects the Russian troops as it does the uh, French. Of course, uh, the French would have, uh, you know, a worse condition in terms of the lack of some, you know, supplies and, and clothing. But if you read the Russian memoirs, you will see the how woeful the conditions were in the Russian army as well. Yeah. And so Kutuzov um, argued that the army needed a respite. Yeah. And he convinced Tsar to give them about two and a half weeks of rest. Yeah. Uh, so there is a kind of mis, uh, misconception that Kutuzov didn't want to attack beyond the Russian borders. No, what he wanted is that rest. And once the re- army was rested, he was perfectly fine with conducting a uh, campaign uh, across the border. Right. Um, but um, that campaign will be not of his planning. Right. Tsar is, as I said, present. It's Tsar who leads, takes the charge. It's Tsar who decides what, where and how. And Kutuzov actually plays the second fiddle, uh, but in and and you you already uh, mentioned that uh, after this brutal campaign, Kutuzov is sick. He's yeah, he's, he's sixty-seven years old at this point. 
and I mean, he's been at in the field uh, since eighteen eleven, since eighteen ten. Really, he's been commanding yep. these troops, and it's a rough life. Yeah. Um, uh, the winter of eighteen twelve is really cold, so he suffers from various illnesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so by eighteen thirteen, he he really needs a break, but he can't. He is kind of can't leave the army. He stays, and at one of the cities um, in uh, in uh, uh, Germany. Yep. Um, he is greeted by the population, but people of cities that came out with flowers and all, and that's in um, in late March, early April. Uh, and Kutuzov uh, got off his if uh, his carriage to greet them, and he, once he did, he was not wearing warm clothes and he got cold. Uh. And that cold kind of uh, developed uh, into some more serious illness. We're not sure exactly what it was. But uh, he kind of complained of, of shivers and fever, and uh, start, you know his condition progressively got worse, and in late April he he passed away. Mm. What do you think his legacy was in the end of the end of the day? Uh, his legacy, uh, his legacy, I think, is multifold. Um, his uh, um, the strategy that he pursued in 1812, I think, was correct. Yep. It is true that it is a strategy that Barclay de Tully laid the foundation for, but I, I would say that if Kutuzov was in charge of the army in in June of 1812, he would have done exactly the same thing. Yeah. Um, uh, so I think uh, he has a nickname, uh, right? His full Russian name, because as you as your listeners know, Russians use patronymic names. Mm-hmm. So his name was uh, Mikhail uh, Ilarionovich. So his father's name is Ilarion, but uh, his nickname was uh, Fe- uh, Fabian Ilarion, which kind of, um, uh, and that's a reference to uh, uh, the Fabian, uh, right, the Cunctator, the great, the, the great Roman general who defeated um, uh, Hannibal um, right. in the Punic War. Right. And that's the nickname that predates 1812. That's a nickname that goes back all the way to the Russo-Turkish wars because people appreciate his methodic approach to war, kind yeah. of rational call, or, uh, reasoning. Uh, so I don't expect him rushing the battle in June or July of 1812 like Bakration would have if he was the commander-in-chief. So I think yeah. the strategy that he, he put he put in place after uh, becoming supreme commander was the right one and perfect one. He um, Kutuzov may not be the flashiest, may not be the most exciting commander of this period, but he was the right commander for the right place at the right time. Yeah. Which, I, which is decides oftentimes is more important than being the most capable and most talented. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I, I think he, he reminds me of like a, a chess player who's in no rush to make his next move. He you know, he was he knew what he was doing. He was just not gonna move at anyone's behest other other than the czar. Uh, you know, Kutuzov yeah. says or excuse me, Wilson says Kutuzov was Utterly lazy, incompetent, and perhaps even a friend of the French. <laughs> and of course, that's said in 1812 when Wilson unsuccessfully tried to uh, convince Kutuzov to uh, uh, to attack Nepo- and destroy Napoleon's army. And so there's right. a lot of uh, ill will from from Wilson on that. Yeah, um, I just think he he knew what he was doing. He was a sly old fox, and he wasn't gonna rush anything that he didn't want to do. Yeah, and in, uh, in eighteen uh, in August, when he's appointed as a commander in chief, Kutuzov uh, uh, has a last meal, kind of last dinner with his family. He's not going to see them uh, again. He will die, you know, without seeing his wife or his children or relatives. Mm-hmm. But at that dinner, 
kind of the of course everyone kind of was fretting and asking him you know what you're gonna do and uh, he tells his family that i don't hope to defeat napoleon and which is a remarkable statement to make if yeah. you are a new supreme commander of an army right tasked with defeating napoleon but he says i don't expect to defeat napoleon i expect to outsmart him mm-hmm. and ultimately uh, this is what i see him accomplishing is that yeah. through this electrical approach to war he he effectively outsmarts napoleon yeah and i think that's a great point um and yeah i think we should end on that i think in the long run yeah i think he did i think he he had a plan he stuck to it no matter what the sycophants or uh yes men of the czar wanted him to do and 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 at the end it, it worked out i mean obviously there was a lot of suffering and carnage involved but he 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 did what he wanted to do well let me add one point maybe um because I think this is one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book. Um, and that is um, about the misuse of history. Mm-hmm. Because Kutuzov offers a very good uh, example of myth-making. Because we oftentimes talk about Napoleonic myth, Napoleonic legend. But there is an, a, um, uh, a strong Kutuzovian myth and legend. Uh, that has been um, going on in Russia uh, for, we can say, better part of two centuries. Mm-hmm. But that is a uh, myth that uh, state very carefully cultivated. Uh, and Kutuzov, who was derided, uh, who was criticized, who was not particularly well-liked by his contemporaries, uh, you see a lot of criticism leveled again, uh, at him while he was alive. Yeah. But after his death, something unique happens. Um, Alexander, even though he disliked the general, he underst- he realized the opportunity he has to kind of create the uh, a narrative, mm-hmm. a great victory. And so he made uh, arrangements to have Kutuzov buried in in the great cathedral of uh, of the Holy Mother of Kazan in St. Petersburg. Mm. And that cathedral then was turned into a, a cathedral of military glory of Russian Empire. Right. All the trophies that the Russian army captured during the war will be deposited there. And Kutuzov's grave will be kind of the shrine right, of the men who brought Russia to the pinnacle of its glory. Um, and that turned Kutuzov into an institution institution that was very difficult to criticize. So you see in the 19th century, people um, tried not to challenge the existing narratives uh, or the state narratives of Kutuzov as a glorious figure because Mm -hmm. it was unpopular. And then this narrative becomes even more entrenched in um, Soviet time because during World War II, when the Nazi Germany attacked Soviet Union, and the Soviets uh, suffered a calamitous right, beginning of the war, hundreds mm-hmm. of thousands of losses in the first yep. two years. Well, um, Soviet dictator uh, Joseph Stalin used Kutuzov as an excuse, um, kind of as, a, as a cover-up, by arguing that the Nazi attack on Soviet Union was not a surprise. The, not, the Soviet defeats were not really defeats, but were all part of a careful, deliberate strategy that right. Stalin put in place just like Kutuzov did in 1812. And that really turned Kutuzov into this mythical figure. National hero. Uh, yeah, um, na- uh, yeah that, it's really a legend, right? There's a, 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 a 
a national hero that is completely unassailable. And yeah. that remained the foundation for much of the Russian historiography until the collapse of Soviet Union. Now the new generation of Russian historians effectively have to struggle uh, against this myth, against this legend, and they try to show the reality, which is very hard to do because people already have kind of bought into this existing narrative. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that's called controlling the narrative, and, and that's what Napoleon was trying to do on St. Helena. He was trying to write his that, narrative. Exactly. <laughs> that's precisely, exactly. Yeah. And uh, no, I think that's a great point to end on, you know, is even even like you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, you know, just because there's a book written on Kutuzov 20, 30 years ago, doesn't mean it's entirely accurate. That's right. Absolutely. You know, so do your research, kids. Do your research. <laughs> <laughs>